Welcome to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhamford.org. We're in Proverbs. We're in the book of Proverbs, and specifically we're going to be in Proverbs 23. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip open to Proverbs 23. If you got your phone uh, with the Bible app on it, you can flip open to that uh, as well, and we'll get there in just a second. But while you're doing that, I want to take you on a trip back with me to the year of 2008. And if you are me and Sarah, we were about one year into our marriage. We had just bought our first home at that point in the beautiful metropolis of the raising capital of the world, Selma, California. Um, and uh, depending on the month, we were expecting our first baby who is now anything but a, uh, a baby. Um, and uh, actually the child dedications, I did the child dedications for service and when you're like a young parent, like the most common phrase you hear from older parents or grandparents is always like, it goes real fast. Like, man, t- man just, it's going to go by faster than you think, right? The days are long, but the years are short. All of it. And I had this urge to say that. And I was just like, man, does that mean I am an older parent? And like, I am. Like, I'm like, I'm just, I'm almost 40 now and everything is downhill. Um, so... Just kidding. All of you guys are like, what? I'm 40. Um, anyway, but back in 2008, not just things with my family, but things got, uh, got pretty messy with the economy, as many of you would, uh, would probably remember. And I'll start with banks and financial institutions who started lending money to people who didn't have the best, uh, best credit history and really couldn't afford some of the houses that they were allowing them to uh, purchase. And so these loans are called subprime mortgages. You guys have probably heard that before. They were a massive massive risk. And on top of that, the housing market was going crazy, right? Skyrocketing home prices didn't feel like it actually lined up with the, the cost of a, uh, a home with that reality. And so it was like this big bubble that was, that was about to burst. And then to make matters worse, banks began to bundle these kind of risky loans together and sold them as like these fancy financial products to investors. And so people started defaulting on their mortgages at that point. Housing prices started falling and then all of those financial products became almost worthless, right? So this, of course, sends shockwaves through the financial systems. Major banks start, start collapsing, credit markets start to, start to freeze up, and it didn't stop there. It actually, the entire world felt the impact with a global recession as we saw, job losses, everyone cutting back on spending, and it was a, a pretty rough time for everyone involved. You know, Sarah and I, we went from purchasing this house the year before, um, and we got it as a foreclosure, which means we were like, man, we got a pretty good deal on this thing at an interest rate at a solid 6.5%, right? We were pumped, pumped on that, and now everybody's like, 6.5%, my Lord, right? Um, and then I, you know, talked to people who've been around forever, they're like, ours was 17% back in the day. I was like, yeah, you're, you are correct. Um, and so we thought we, we got a pretty good deal on, on the entire, entire house. And then in one year, our house went from being a foreclosure, like I said, that we got a good deal on, to being underwater to the tune of about $62,000 in a year, right? And I know this because the neighborhood flipped seemingly overnight. When we purchased it, we're like, oh, this is going to be a great place to raise our kids right across the street from a school. This is, this is like a solid opportunity for us to one day I came home for lunch and the bomb squad was outside of our house, 
right? Like, I, I, I'm not joking. Literally, the bomb squad was right across the street from our house uh, or in the street. I couldn't pull into my driveway. Um, and, of course, I go up to a guy who's, like, in, like, ready to be exploded, right? And I was just like, hey, what's going on? And he was like, oh, we found live grenades at the home next door to yours. And I was like, oh, cool. As, I don't know if my one and two-year-old should be playing with those, you know, necessarily. So the worst part of the whole thing was, though, is that, like, of course, the bomb squad is there. And I called my buddy. I was like, bro, you got to get down here. They're going to explode some grenades by my house. Like, you got to come see this. So he drives over. And we hung out there for, like, two hours. And the bomb squad was like, okay, everybody get back. Get behind the truck. Get behind the barrier, right? Uh, it's about we're going to detonate it. And they do this count on, like, three, two, one. I'm expecting, like, this, like, explosion. And it was just, like, poof. I was like, oh, come on, man. That wasn't, that wasn't fun at all. But needless to say, we were like, okay, it's time for us to get out of that, uh, that situation. And so the values of homes and stocks, those things just, just plummeted as that housing bubble popped. And so a lot of people lost significant amounts of their retirement accounts, significant investments, their homes seemingly overnight, right? And some of you, some of you felt that in a very, very real way. Some of you very much got impacted by that recession in 2008. And so I want you to think about your life for a little bit right now. And I know this maybe doesn't hit home for everybody, but, but the vast majority of people, I think it does. Uh, most people in here, I would say, have faced a financial crisis or at the very least have faced financial strain at one point or another in their, in their life. And maybe it was when you bought your first house. Maybe it was the recession in 2008. Maybe you simply got clobbered by a bunch of medical bills that you simply weren't expecting to come forth. Maybe it was a loss of a job that you felt like, oh, you know what? I have this, this great job. I have job security. Then all of a sudden, the, uh, the company decided to downsize by a couple hundred employees and you were left without a paycheck for a while. I don't know what it is for you, but the reality of the situation is that one day you can wake up and your financial situation seems stable, and then the next you're rolling pennies for gas, hoping not to have to put anything else on your credit card. Money is incredibly fleeting. And Proverbs has a ton to say about this, and we'll get to that in just a second. But the question then becomes, if money can disappear so quickly, is it worth spending all of your energy for it? I heard a story once about a couple. It was an older couple, um, and this is largely about 2008 as well. They had worked... They had worked their tails off saving up for a comfy retirement, right? They had put a bunch of their money actually into their home. And then once they retired, their goal was to sell that home, downsize into something a little bit more manageable, um, and live off of that money that, that their, house, their house was worth, or, or worth rather. But then housing market tanked. And so their dreams, they largely go up in smoke. The house's value completely plummeted, leaving them with a crazy high mortgage that was worth more than the place was worth itself. And so if that's not bad enough, the husband's pension gets hammered by the recession, leaving them with just the wife's very small Social Security checks in order to be able to get by. Right, and then, of course, everything got super expensive. They had to start cutting back on everything. Vacations weren't weren't an option. Doctor visits were too expensive, right? Even putting food on the table began to be a struggle. And all that stress started taking a toll then on their health, right? The husband's blood pressure shoots up. The wife's arthritis gets worse because they couldn't afford proper medical care. They felt absolutely trapped. 
And so their spark, largely for life, just kind of faded. They saw their dreams begin to crumble right before their, right before their very eyes as they tried to sell their house to get out from underneath the, the financial mess. But it was, it, was, it was tough. Buyers were scarce. The ones who showed up lowballed them big time, right? And this isn't even an isolated uh, situation, Right? This happened all over the place. People only a few years ago were beginning to feel like they had their feet underneath them again. I was in college when all of this went down. Um, and I was actually going to Merced Community College at the time, up where I'm from, Merced, Merced area. Merced County was the hardest hit county in the entire nation by the recession in 2008. Right, banks were going under. Like it, it was absolutely crazy to to see. But clearly, money is incredibly fleeting. And when we focus on the pursuit of money above everything else, we open ourselves up to a world of hurt. And this is what wisdom actually has to say about it in Proverbs twenty three specifically verses four and five. It says, do not wear yourself out to get rich. Don't trust your own cleverness. Cast but a glance at riches and they're gone, for they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. So before we get, before we get too far into this, uh, I want you to understand something, that, that God is not against people becoming wealthy. Don't leave here assuming that is what I am saying. That's not what I'm saying. And there's plenty of instances in Scripture where people became wealthy because God had a specific blessing upon that person. I also believe that God has put people on this earth to make money hand over fist, Right? I have friends like this that I feel like all they have to do is sneeze and like money comes out of their nose. And I'm just like, congratulations on that spiritual gift. Right? But what they do with it is the ability largely to take that money, to be generous with that money, and to be able to fund the ministry of God, of the church, and of the spreading of the gospel throughout the world. And so they do that. They make this money and they give it away. They make money and they give it away. I really don't think God is against this idea of wealth. He's not anti-wealth, as some people would probably assume. But he is concerned with how people view money and wealth. And to be more specific, and largely what this verse is talking about, is how is it that we pursue money and wealth? That's where the real danger lies. Is what does that pursuit look like? So let's get to the first portion of this, uh, this proverb here, where it says, essentially, don't, don't weary yourself to gain, to gain wealth. The word weary here specifically means to become weary with work, okay? It indicates that the person is putting forth a lot of effort, this exhausting exertion to try to accomplish something. And it should probably be noted here that, that God is for hard work, so it's actually kind of funny. As we look at these different Proverbs, we have to recognize that these Proverbs, like we said as we introduced the entire thing, it doesn't mean these Proverbs are absolute truth. It doesn't literally mean that your money is going to gain wings and fly away. Okay? These are truths that we need to do our best to live by. Okay? So like I said, for some of you, this may not apply. You're like, nope, I'm good. I don't care about money at all, as a matter of fact. I haven't gone to work in two weeks, and it's great. Right? But also, on top of that, God is for hard work. God is for diligence. My dad would remind me of this regularly as I was sleeping into 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock as a high school student, right? 
And my dad was like, get up, you sluggard. And I was like, what's a sluggard? He's like, go read your Bible. You'll find out. I was like, cool, dad, thank you. If you don't know what a sluggard is, go read your Bible. You'll find out, okay? So God is for hard work. God is not encouraging laziness here. But he is saying that those who put forth exhausting labor with the ultimate goal of being to become wealthy are focusing largely on the wrong goal. That's what he's saying here. I actually remember my, uh, my first job, no, nope, my second job, my first job was a lifeguard, so that doesn't count as an actual job. My second job, I worked as a copy boy at a title company. It was riveting. Yeah, it was, I felt like I had so much purpose as I would show up after high school and I would run copies for four, five, six hours. The next day they would tell me I ran the copies wrong and then I'd have to do them all over again, right? Um, but that's what I did. And one of my bosses, because when you're a copy boy at 17 years old, you have a whole lot of bosses. One of my bosses, this was his life. This is all he desired was to be rich. And so he was there all of the time, doing his best to just get ahead, right? His goal was to work so hard when he was young to be able to make millions and millions of dollars so he could retire early. And so he's always there. And he had a wife and a couple of kids, but man, from the way that he kind of talked about them to us, it seemed like they were largely just obstacles to him getting where he wanted to go rather than being blessings in his life as we talked about here with these child dedications earlier, right? And I've seen people like this labor so hard to become rich. They reach their goal, but find out that the loss of their marriage and the fact their kids have no respect for them ends up costing far more than the millions that they, that, that they have to spend in their old age. Dads, happy Father's Day. But dads, remember, wow, a noble goal is definitely to provide for your family. A more noble goal is to love your kids and to love your bride in such a way that they will encounter Christ in their lives both now and for eternity. That's a noble goal. My dad, he grew up incredibly poor, okay? And I've, I've shared this story before. My dad grew up so poor that um, he, he largely, he would tell us that he survived on burnt popcorn and bananas. He, he learned to like burnt popcorn so his four other siblings wouldn't eat his popcorn. And so every single time he's like, yeah, I grew up on burnt popcorn and banana, or burnt popcorn and hot dogs, rather. Um, bananas sounded fine. Hot dogs didn't sound as great. Um, I, I always thought to myself, like, Dad, the burnt popcorn was on you. That wasn't because you were poor. Like, that was your choice to burn that popcorn to eat it, right? And so he grew up incredibly poor. As a matter of fact, when he was 18, his, uh, his, his guardians at that point, my grandparents, uh, had passed away. And it was his responsibility now to care for some of his siblings, specifically his younger brother. Because when my dad was younger, his mom was an alcoholic. And, and she left. And then she eventually died. His dad abandoned his family for... Um, for another way of life uh, when he was younger as well. So he lived with his grandparents. Grandparents died. So here my dad is, 18 years old. He's the oldest boy in the house, and he's got other siblings that he needs to care for. He had just graduated high school, and he thought, I need to be able to figure out how to make money for my siblings. And so he was like, well, I can move to Reno and deal blackjack. And that might be the best opportunity that I have. I can get some tips. I can play some cards. I can do all that stuff while his younger brother specifically worked his way through, uh, through high school. And so my dad grew up really poor. And also the first card game I ever learned was blackjack. So 
My dad, though, regardless of how poor he was, as he was like, you know what? There are things that are more important in life than me simply gaining money for the sake of gaining, gaining money. And he had to work hard for it, right? He went from blackjack dealer at one point. He worked at a bowling alley where he drilled out uh, holes in the balls to only fit his hand until he got in trouble by his boss for doing that. Um, he worked as a mechanic for a little bit of time. Um, he did all of these different things before he landed a job as a bank teller and eventually worked his way up to the third highest position in his bank before he passed away. He didn't even feel like he had job security until it was like five years removed from when he passed away because he never finished his bachelor's degree, right? You want to talk about somebody who has a desire to make money? Like that should have been my dad based on the circumstances that he was dealt. And my dad worked very hard and he was very good at his job. But my dad's goal was never to make money. My dad's goal was never to walk through life and just be like, you know what, I have the most money, I have the most toys, or anything like that. My dad never missed games. My dad never missed church and never missed the opportunity to take us to to church for the most part, unless the 49ers were playing at 10 a.m. on a Sunday morning. Then in some cases we missed church, right? And he always wanted to make sure that at the end of the day, we sat together around our dinner table as a family and talked about what was going on in the midst of our lives. That was a more noble goal for him, that we had stability and we had a place where we could encounter Jesus as young people so we didn't have to worry about things. But his goal was never wealth. His goal was stability and pointing us towards Jesus, right? Proverbs actually tells us in this next section that we shouldn't trust our own cleverness. And my dad, very clever, yeah, but we shouldn't trust in our own cleverness. It's actually an interesting word that's used here. It means to think hard about something, to really like wrap your brain around something. And so the result of this kind of thinking should be a proper discernment of it. But according to what's being said here, God is warning us against making wealth the thing we consider and we think about most or hardest in our life. There there are people who constantly chase this elusive goal of being rich, right? You probably know these people that read, they read books about it. They listen to podcasts that promise them that the the way to get there, there's there's even a, a Christianized version of this type of thinking. And I actually think it's the most, one of the most damaging theologies to Christianity in modern day Christianity. It's called the prosperity gospel. And it's teaching promises that God himself is nothing more than a divine sugar daddy. Like that is who he is. Like if we treat God right and we confess the right things and we pray the right prayers and we give a certain amount of money, then we are going to reap that tenfold in return. That God is going to, help, going to bless us with health. He's going to bless us with wealth. He's going to bless us with happiness, with all of these different things. And largely one of my issues with it is like, if they, like what, what then do we tell the people who are persecuted Christians in forgotten countries who are in jail for their faith. Like, well, you clearly didn't pray hard enough or you clearly didn't give enough money to the gospel. Or maybe if you do give enough money, you'll have twice as much bread and water in the conditions that you're currently living in than your cellmate does. Incredibly, incredibly damaging. Right? God wants us to have our minds fixed on things other than our own financial bottom line. 
And if we, we truly had discernment, we'd know that our bank account will matter only in how we used it for God's glory. Not how much we have when we die, right? That cleverness should be of the Lord himself and what his will is for us in life. So to have a, a constant consideration of wealth is largely to waste our minds on things that are not eternal. These things, wealth is incredibly elusive. It, it always reminds me of, uh, of the stat regarding professional football, right? I was really going to try to do a, uh, a baseball analogy here because uh, the Giants are one game away from sweeping the Dodgers this weekend, but we'll go with football instead. Go Niners. Sorry, I had to stick it in somewhere. I was trying to figure out how to do it. Anyway, but in football, this coming year, the league minimum for football is $750,000 a year. League minimum. That means you could be terrible. You could be the worst person on the team, never see playing time, never step foot on a field apart from stretching before the game and picking up trash maybe after the game. Like you never see the field ever and you will walk away with $750,000 a year. Okay, so let's do some math here. Let's assume that this person, this football player doesn't live in California and he'll see the majority of that $750,000, okay? So between agent and taxes and different things like that, let's assume the league minimum, that person is pocketing 600 grand a year. The average uh, career length for an NFL football player is about three years, a little more than three years. So that means that person is pocketing $1.8 million over the course of three years, right? Not bad. I think a lot of us would be like, I would tear my ACL for $1.8 million over the course of three years. So a documentary was actually made a few years ago, and it found out that three out of four players who retired from the NFL are broke one year after their career is over. One year after, and that's not just people who have only made the league minimum. These are guys who have made tens of millions of dollars playing a sport, entertaining the masses, right? But after their career ends, they are broke within one year, flat broke. Why? Because wealth will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. That's what Proverbs tells us is actually a real phenomenon. Not, not your money sprouting wings, that's a metaphor, but there's a thing called lifestyle creep. Okay, lifestyle creep. And some of you maybe have heard of it. If you haven't heard of it, you've probably definitely felt it, though. I know we have, right? So picture this. You land a better job, right? And you're making more money than you've ever made, and you think, oh, finally we can breathe a little bit, right? We don't have to tighten our belts with everything. We're not having ramen for dinner every single night, even though it's the dream of my 14-year-old. Like, all of a sudden, your bank account is just looking a little bit healthier, and you think, hey, I can, I can afford to just treat myself a little bit more. And that right there is where lifestyle creep Sneaks in. See, lifestyle creep happens when, when your spending gradually increases as your income goes up. You start splurging on some fancier dinners, right? Upgrading to a, uh, a swankier house or buying all of the latest uh, gadge gadgets. And it's this slow creep that happens without you even realizing it. Right? Lifestyle creeps affects your spending because it creates a new norm. Right? What, what used to be a treat now has become the expectation. 
your brain starts to adapt to kind of this upgraded lifestyle a little bit more. And then you become stuck in this never-ending cycle of trying to maintain that inflated lifestyle. Right? Lifestyle creep affects your spending because it creates that, that, that new norm. And what used to be a treat, like I said, now expectation. You can't go back. You can't even imagine going back to your simpler, more frugal days. But here's the problem with that. As your expenses rise, so, do your fi- so does your financial stress. You find yourself living paycheck to paycheck, struggling largely to keep up with the mounting bills. You think to yourself, but I, I just got a raise a year ago. How come we don't have any more breathing room? Why? Money is fleeting. Wings of eagles. That's not even to mention the pressure to maintain appearances and keep up with your neighbors on top of all of that. So that idea of, uh, of your money sprouting wings like eagles and flying off into the sky, like what a picture to remember. And this is true in so many ways. What was, what was just covered is one of the ways that wealth, wealth takes wings, but there's another thing that's even more important for us to remember, right? Ask, ask a rich man how much money he needs in order to be content. And his answer will be just a little bit more than I have now. That's actually a famous quote. And this, is, this is the most deceptive part of wealth largely. Like when we get there to our stated goal, we will find out that our stated goal is largely never going to be enough. It's never going to bring us peace. It's never going to bring us satisfaction. So we figure we'll set our goals a little bit higher and a little bit higher and a little bit higher only to find out when we get there, we still don't feel satisfied. We still don't feel like, like we have any peace. And the sad part is there are people who spend their entire lives chasing the eagle as it soars higher and higher and higher into the air. They die richer than they've ever dreamed of. But learning that the dream becomes a nightmare because of the lack of satisfaction in their wealth. So one last thing needs to be said of a life spent chasing after wealth and riches. And it's kind of the ultimate downer for the rich man is largely when he dies. That rich man leaves everything behind. There are no rich people and no poor people in heaven or in hell. There's just people. And I feel like we, we struggle to grasp that, right? The basis of success or failure has nothing to do with how much money you make and has everything to do with being able to stand before God during judgment. Jesus actually tells the story of the rich farmer. And this rich farmer at this point, he's got like this killer crop, right? It's a bumper crop and he thinks to himself, I don't have enough space to store all of my crops in the barns that I have. So he comes up with an idea. I'm not going to keep those barns. I'm going to tear those barns down and I'm going to build new barns to store all of my crop, all of my wealth. And at that point, then I can, then I can rest. And then Jesus has words here. It's in Luke 12, verses 20 to 21. His words are actually kind of frightening. This is what it says. It says, just then God showed up, right? The guy, he builds his barns. And God showed up and he said, fool, tonight you die. And your barn full of goods, who gets it? That's what happens when you fill your barn with self and not with God. Ugh, frightening words. 
You know, we can be as wealthy as 10 Solomons, right? Solomon's the guy who wrote the book of Proverbs, largely considered one of the most wealthiest men in the world. And we can still find ourselves eternally bankrupt if we don't have forgiveness and if we don't have salvation that is found in Jesus Christ alone, not in our money. We can chase wealth into the heavens like that eagle only to find out that in the end, the descent into infinite poverty lasts not just a human lifetime. That descent into human poverty can last for all of eternity. Right, church, I feel like we're filling our barns oftentimes with self instead of with God. Here's true wisdom. You want to be rich? Fill your barn with God. That wealth will last beyond what, we can, what, what can be stolen or what can rust away. Now, that story I told earlier of the, uh, the, older, the older couple, right, despite their financial mess and caused by the housing crash, like these two people, they never once lost faith in God. They began to understand that they couldn't control their circumstances, but they could control their attitude and they could begin to trust in God. They could begin to trust in that higher power. Instead of getting all bitter and resentful about their situation, they simply leaned into their faith. They prayed like there was no tomorrow, as they should, both normally and also in the situation in which they, uh, they found, their, found themselves. They began to seek guidance and wisdom from scripture, from God, from other believers. And they realized that being content wasn't about having this like fat bank account. It was about having faith and about having gratitude for what it was that God had already blessed them with. And sure, they're still absolutely broke. It didn't change their financial situation, but their trust in God helped them find peace amid that situation that they were in. They stopped sweating the little things, started focusing on simple joys of life. Right? They laughed together. They cherished every moment, counted their blessings like you should, like being healthy despite their ailments, having each other's love. And so instead of chasing this wealth, they found happiness in the little things, right? And I don't know where you find happiness and contentment in the little things. Yesterday, I found it as I had steaks on my smoker and my boys playing in the pool and I was sitting in the shade trying not to get too sweaty, Right? Contentment in that moment. You couldn't have paid me a million. You could pay me a million dollars and I would have left. But that, in that moment, though, I thought this is contentment. This is where I am supposed to be. I don't even want to think about work. I don't even want to think about gaining more money right now. I want to be present in this moment with my kids, with my family. And so they found that joy in a lot of those little things. They found peace knowing that that eternal inheritance far outweighed any sort of material possessions that they would have. So the question for us today becomes this, where is your treasure? And if you've been a part of church, you probably know where I'm going with this, but, but I ask it this way because scripture actually talks about this in Matthew 6, 21. It says, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. What things do you treasure? That's where your heart is going to be. The entire passage here is Jesus, and he's teaching his disciples about the importance of laying up treasures in heaven rather than treasure on earth. It actually comes from Jesus' sermon on the mount. You can read all of, uh, all of Matthew 6. And he addresses this issue of the earthly possessions. And the danger is largely of placing too much value on material wealth. He, he talks about and warns about accumulating treasures on earth where they're susceptible to decay, theft, loss, wings of eagles. 
Instead, he actually encourages his followers to prioritize eternal treasure by investing in the kingdom of God. Fill your barn with God. And Jesus emphasizes that, that our hearts and our treasures are closely connected. Right? He teaches that where we choose to invest our time, our energy, our, re- our resources largely reflects the true condition of our hearts. And so if our focus is solely on amassing wealth and our focus is solely on amassing possessions, our hearts will be consumed with materialism and greed and worries associated with maintaining earthly riches. Why? Because that's where our heart is. That's largely what we're thinking about. On the other hand, though, if our priorities are aligned with God's kingdom, God's righteousness, our hearts will be devoted to eternal values and the things that ultimately please God not to simply please us. And so by placing our treasures in heaven, investing in acts of, of kindness, serving other people, spreading the message of, of love and, and salvation through Christ Jesus, we, we cultivate a heart that is aligned with God's purposes at that point, right? Our actions and choices become a reflection of our commitment to God and the eternal rewards that he promises us. And I get it, right? Life can be a crazy roller coaster. And there's some of you in here who are probably thinking to yourself, yeah, but, but you make more money than I do. And so because of that, you don't understand where I'm at. And if that's what you're thinking right now, you've missed the point. The point isn't how much money you make. The point is how grateful are you for what God has already blessed you with? And what are you using that money for to further the kingdom of God? I don't care if you make $15,000 or $15 million. If you're making $15 million, it's not showing up in your tithes either, by the way, just so you're aware. But I get it. It can feel like a crazy roller coaster, right? Life can, like ups and downs and twists and turns, and we're bombarded with messages telling us that success is measured by the size of your bank account. The fancy cars that we drive, the number of toys that we have, but that isn't where we as Christians are supposed to land. Instead of chasing after that almighty dollar, we should be setting our sights on something greater, right? Let's have a vision as a church of living, uh, of living that's all about God, living that's all about his son, Jesus. Like, let's make our lives a reflection of their love, of their grace, and of their truth. Right? When we live for material possessions, we're always craving more. Right? It's like we're stuck on an endless treadmill. Actually, as I was writing this, I thought I should put a treadmill on the stage and just preach while walking on the treadmill. And I thought that would probably be a bad idea. I'd be exhausted in like two minutes. But the service would have been shorter, so you guys all might have liked it. But it feels like we're just on this treadmill, right? Never satisfied, always hungry for the next shiny thing. But when we live for God, right, that's a completely different story. We find contentment and peace and a sense of, sense of purpose that money simply cannot buy. And so this morning, here's, here's your challenge. Our challenge this morning is simply to, to shift our priorities, Right? Instead of obsessing over the latest toys or designer clothes, right? our goal should be to invest in the things that really matter. Our goal should be to, to pour our energy into acts of kindness, lending help to those in need, spreading the love of Christ wherever it is that we go. It's one of the reasons that I was more impressed by the number of volunteers that we have signed up for VBS than the number of kids we have signed up for VBS. Because I'm like, oh, man, our church is, we're, like, we're getting it. 
Like that's where our treasure is. Like the next generation of kids coming to know and having a saving faith in Jesus, they are putting their money literally where their mouth is. Right? We had those Amazon shopping lists out in the a lobby a couple weeks ago. And like they were almost completely and totally gone. Brian told me today that, that somebody came up and told them that they had paid for the $600 water slides that we were going to use for VBS and we didn't even have to worry about it anymore. And I'm like, you want to talk about generosity? You want to talk about people who are, who are kingdom-minded? Like that's the direction we should continue to be headed as a church, that the size of your bank account does not matter. It's what you do with that bank account in order to honor God. That is what matters. And so church, we need to recognize that your wealth is fleeting. Here today, gone, to, gone tomorrow. But our perspective of eternity and our perspective of, of how it is that we view the world and what it is that we are going to do with the time and the money and the resources that we have here, that is what is important. That we are going to honor God with those things to the best of our ability. So church, I would say let's choose a vision for living that's more about what the, it's, that's more, that's about more than what we can accumulate. All right, let's, let's live for God and Jesus knowing that in their hands we have absolutely everything that we need. Let's live with purpose. Spreading the gospel and making a lasting impact on this world. It won't always be easy, but at the end of the day, it's absolutely worth it. Amen, church? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we, and I just thank you for everything that's going on around here. I pray a special prayer over our kids team and Brian and Sarah and Kayla and all of the volunteers and all the kids who are going to fill this place up this week and get to learn about you while going down water slides. God, we thank you for that. We thank you for your provision in that. Thank you for the people who continue to partner with us financially in order to make your name known. So we thank you for that. We pray kids would come to a saving faith in you even this week. We thank you for dads and the role that they play, the incredibly important role that they play in the same way that moms have a role, so do dads. And so, God, I pray that today they would be celebrated. They can do whatever they want to do. They can smoke whatever meat they want to smoke. But, God, thank you for them. And I pray that they would lead their families really, really well in a way that would honor you. But, God, even with this message today, this proverb, your word today that we would come to realize that the end all be all of our lives is simply not to make as much money as we possibly can. It's to point as many people to you as we can with the resources you've given us. And so God, I pray that would be true of us as a church. Maybe it's time, maybe it's money, maybe it's something else, I don't know. But God, I pray that we would continue to do our best to partner with you in that. And with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, if there's people here this morning who maybe, maybe are still experiencing that spiritual poverty that we talked about, who only have hope in this world and nothing else, if that's you this morning and you want to make a profession of faith and have eternal riches, if that's you, you can simply pray what we call the ABCs here. Say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. 
that I fall short of your glory every single day. But B, I believe that you sent your son to die on a cross for me. That he took all of that sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame on that cross so we could be with you for eternity and see that I would choose to follow you every single day of my life with my decisions, with my bank account, with my time, all of those things. We love you, Father. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.